Welcome, everyone, to Mystery, a podcast about myths and history. Uh, welcome to another Podicus Magnus episode. What? That's right, Peter. Peter is here, our guest star. Mm. I'm your host, Brian Taylor Marshall, and the permanent guest. I always want to like throw a co in there, and I think about it. Right. Cammy, how's it going? She's a permanent star. I feel like, yeah, I feel like I could be a co-host at this point. Keep trying. It's okay. going to get there one day. Um, <laughs> so, everyone, welcome to Mystery. Uh, every week here on the podcast, we will select any sort of myth or history or you name it, and we'll Google it, and then we'll tell you a story, and then we'll kind of tell you the history behind that story as best we can. It works a little weird. There's some weird stuff. Cryptids. Cryptids, clowns, Thors, <laughs> goat suckers. It's gone It's gone everywhere. Um, <laughs> none of those are featured today's show, but instead we're talking about fairies. Um, the little tiny creatures that have been around since forever. Um, but we'll get into that a little later. So we're specifically talking about the, the stories that we've got featured today um, are centered around... Uh, fairies of the British Isles, mm-hmm. um, where it became really popular. Uh, my mom still calls like Christmas lights fairy lights, for instance. Oh, really? I mean, that still calls, I and mean, that's what they call them. In this is what she calls them. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Americans, we just call them Christmas lights. Hmm. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Where's she from? England. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. They're fairy lights there. The little lights. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna start calling it that. Yeah. Do it. It's way better. Yeah. Start it. Um, I'm gonna put them around my boat. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, so fairies. Fairy flag fly. <laughs> they're, uh, I do. They're super <laughs> injected into multiple cultures. Um, so this is just kind of like the tip of the iceberg. But Peter, why don't you set up what you got for us? Okay. Well, I'm going to be uh, talking about uh, William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, I chose this for a number of reasons. Um, I, I credit my, like, I was, I was an English major in college. Um, and I don't think I would have been one if it were not for Neil Gaiman and his uh, comic book, The Sandman, which I read in the oh, 90s. Lovely. So great. Um, and I had read Shakespeare in school, but, you know, it was school. It was an assignment, so I you know, wasn't really, you know, I was, I was kind of trudging through it. But it wasn't until I read um, The Sandman, where, where they have a whole issue devoted to A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, that I really kind of caught the Shakespeare bug. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I love the story. Um, it's 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 interesting. This was written in the 1590s by William Shakespeare, um, and it's one of his few plays that has an original plot. Shakespeare was was notorious for kind of you know stealing bits of history and and, and borrowing from other writers to to make his plays. But um, for all intents and purposes, *A Midsummer Night's Dream* is a fairly original plot from from the the bard um and uh it certainly borrows from um the the kind of fairy tradition and that's that's kind of like why i wanted to to talk about the story is it it deals with some themes that we'll see again and again in fairy stories uh, themes of transformation and and trickery and and um bringing human children into the world of fairy so we're going to hear about all of that but so here we go our story begins, actually, in ancient Athens, where our old friend Theseus, uh, Duke of Athens and slayer of the Minotaur, is preparing to marry... 
Hippolyta, the former queen of the Amazons. But a great storm has stricken the land and cast a dark shadow on what should be a joyful time of celebration. What is the cause of this mysterious storm? We will soon see. In a lush green forest near the outskirts of Athens, love is in the air. Two pairs of star-crossed lovers have become lost within the labyrinthian forest and their own tangled emotions. Hermia is in love with Lysander, though her father demands that she marry honorable and handsome Demetrius. Helena, Hermia's best friend, is herself in love with Demetrius, who broke off their relationship when he became betrothed to Hermia. Meanwhile, a troupe of very English-sounding actors are preparing <laughs> a play on the occasion of Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding. Among them are the players Peter Quince, Nick Bottom, F Francis Flute, Robin Starveling, Tom Snout, and Snug. Uh, Mr. Bottom will play the lead role in their stage production of Pyramus and Thisbe, and the players part ways agreeing to meet at the Duke's Oak in the center of the forest. So what we're seeing here is, is kind of interesting. We have this collision of like Greek mythology and, and English, English players, and as we will come to, come to see, um, some English uh, variations on, on, on classic fairy tropes. So there's another party at play in the forest outside Athens. The king of fairies himself, Lord Oberon, is having some marriage issues of his own with his queen Titania. And it's this dispute that has disrupted the weather and threatens to warp reality itself. You see, Titania has adopted a human boy, an orphan whose mother was a devotee of Titania. She wishes to bring the child to the world of fairy, where he will become a changeling. Jealous and threatened by the child, Oberon vows to punish his queen for her disobedience. He calls upon his servant, Robin Puck Goodfellow, a mischievous trickster with the legs of a goat, pointed ears, and a devilish smile. Oberon orders Puck to retrieve a flower called Love in Idleness, which grows where one of Cupid's arrows mistakenly fell. From this flower, Oberon will concoct a potion that when placed on a sleeping person's eyelids will cause them to fall in love with the first person they see. His aim is to make Titania fall in love with a wild beast and in her shame, she will agree to give the changeling child over to him. While walking in the forest, Oberon observes the star-crossed lovers and watching their futile attempts to woo one another away from their intended partners orders Puck to give them all a dose of the love potion also. Puck makes a bit of a bollocks of it and causes both men to fall in love with Helena, while Hermia becomes further lost in the twisted branches of the forest and the thorny snares of heartbreak. Meanwhile, our band of players have traveled deep into the forest to rehearse their play. Puck becomes highly amused by the leading man Bottom and transforms his head into that of a jackass. <laughs> The other players flee when they see the transfigured Bottom, uh, but Bottom resolves to await his friend's return and reclines under a great spreading tree, singing to himself. And who should find him there but Titania, who has just awakened from a nap and has been freshly anointed with the love potion. She immediately falls madly in love with Bottom and his very handsome, hairy, donkey face. <laughs> <laughs> While she dotes on him, Oberon seizes the changeling, changeling child. Having achieved his goal, Oberon orders Puck to undo the spell. 
Bottom is restored to normal, and the four lovers lost in the forest find their way home again and find true love along the way. Theseus and Hippolyta arrive on the scene as they are hunting in the woods. Finding the young lovers, they arrange a group wedding then and there on the spot. Back in Athens, the players have reunited and put on a terrible production of Pyramus and Thisbe, but the wedding guests mistake it for a comedy and just eat it up. <laughs> Springtime for Hitler. Thanks, guys. The storm in their marriage subsided. Oberon and Titania arrive at the wedding and bless the newlyweds. Puck concludes our story by breaking the fourth wall, suggesting to the audience that it was all just a dream and we are all merely players. And here's what he says. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream, gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And, as I am an honest puck, if we have earned, if we have unearned luck, now to escape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long, else the puck a liar call. So good night unto all you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Fun fact. Uh, I played Nick Bottom in a high school production of Did the you show. Really? Yeah. Oh, I could totally see <laughs> yeah. that. Also, I almost forgot, honestly. Aww. I just remembered. I was like, I think I did that. Yeah, it was great. So I would recommend Bryant's uh, high school yeah. show. <laughs> something you should look into. No, uh, I was just thinking about uh, Lucius and, and the Golden Ass, how he was transformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's cool. Yeah. It's really neat. Things connect in weird ways. Mytheme. That's, that's Mytheme. What, that's what we're here for. We get a buck every time you say that word. <laughs> no, that's Mytheme. great. Mytheme.com. <laughs> right, yeah. No, that's great. Um, you fairies have a long history in, in England, and it's fun seeing them as like a... Like, we talked about, like, there's not like a, a fairy pantheon. I mean, the fairies are... are they're, they're a creature. They're, they're so many things, mm-hmm. but it's cool to see, like, there's a king of the fairies and a queen of the fairies mm-hmm. and fairies were could, could have been like they could have been responsible for terrible things but there was a slight change and obviously by Shakespeare's time he was turning them into that you know more playful creature what's interesting is I, I think these these fairy stories are, are very old um, and what we're seeing in, 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 in this play is kind of Shakespeare kind of bringing it to a popular audience like mm. this 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 play would have been uh, probably performed at court. It, it, uh, historians think it may have actually been written for a wedding and that Queen Elizabeth may have been in attendance. So what we're seeing is like kind of a, uh, like a mainstreaming of these, these, yeah. these fairy mm-hmm. stories into a, into a piece of, of popular fiction. Yeah. But these stories have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years before this, uh, before this play was written. And, and what, what Cammy going to show us is how, um, these these stories can persist um, up until almost modern into modern yeah, times. Yeah. Sure. So, Cam, what you got? Yeah. So, I my sources are the Fairy Ring, are Elsie and Francis Fool the World, by Mary Lucier, and that may have been a bit of a spoiler. The setting is the English countryside countryside of Cottingley during World War One, uh, known to them as the Great War. So, because they didn't know there would be a two. Uh, <laughs> so, so awesome. 
James Emberry has released Peter Pan, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle believes in fairies. Who's that? He wrote, um, oh my god, why did I forget what he wrote? <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Shut up! Sherlock Holmes, thank you. Um, I knew Whoa. it, I just couldn't remember the name. It's elementary. <laughs> Get out, please, it sir. Is. You're done. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so he believes in fairies hard. And Frances, she's a little girl. She's just come to England from Cape Town, South Africa, where her father had been stationed. Frances was to be staying with her uncle and aunt and cousin while her father went back to war. Her cousin Elsie was 15 while Frances was 9. Frances spent many of her days outside wandering the garden and brook that ran through the property. After a while, she met a little leaf that twirled on its own without the wind. Upon further inspection, she saw a little man who was twirling the leaf leaf as he walked by the brook. She returned day after day and would see the little men in green and she would also see flying fairies. They would hold gatherings for what purpose was a mystery. No one really believed the girl saw these creatures uh, when she told them about the encounters. Of course, like... <laughs> one day when the adults were teasing Frances about them, Elsie came to her defense and said that she saw them too. She told Frances that night that she had a plan to show the adults that fairies existed. Elsie's father had a box camera, you see. Elsie borrowed the camera and carefully loaded the film. She then cut out some fairies from one of Frances's books and attached them to hat pins. They went to the brook and took photographs of Frances with the fairies. This shut the adults up for a while, and life went on how it tends to. The war ended and the girls took another photograph. Frances soon moved with, with her family to Scarsboro. Uh, she no longer saw fairies, but she now had other things to occupy her time. Elsie remained in Cottingley with her family. Her mother was fond of going to lectures. She went one day to a lecture held by the Theosophist, and this lecture was about fairies. Elsie's mother mentioned the photographs her daughter took, and the speaker took great interest. He paid for a print of the photo to be sent to London. They sent him the photo prints and the negatives. They were scrutinized by a London photographer. He believed them to be genuine. In talks... <clears throat> sorry. In walks uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He was writing an article on fairies and had heard of the photographs the girls had taken. He and Mr. Gardner of the Theosophist... Uh, were convinced through a series and of letters and gifts to Francis and Elsie, um, basically convinced them to come back to Cottingley and take more photographs because you know Francis is gone. Uh, Elsie made two more cutouts and they took them outside and took two more photographs. Her mother didn't think uh, just two would be enough, but it started raining and it had rained for like days and when the rain finally broke, the girls, that's when they went out and took the final photograph. So they had something else to send in. So they have three photographs now to send in. They had two previous. So they're five altogether. Um, the last photograph, they didn't make any cutouts for. This is according to both of the girls. Mm -hmm. Just to be clear, none of the adults know any of these photographs are fake. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's article hits, hits the public. 
He published it in The Strand, which is a popular magazine at the time. He had changed the name of the girls, but the press found them anyway. Their lives were a bit of, of hell, basically, for a while. Uh, Doyle published the new photographs in a different article. And the press had dogged the two girls for interviews about their experience. Both of them claimed they could no longer see fairies. After a while, the sensation died down. So, <laughs> some time passes. Both of the girls grow up. They get married. They live their lives. They keep their secret until 1983, when Elsie told the truth. Frances claimed to her dying day, however, that while the first four photographs were fake, the fairy bower photograph, which was the fifth one that they took, mm -hmm. was real. So. What? That's yeah. amazing. That's and you amazing. can look up, and I might try to post this in the Facebook group. But Please, totally. Yeah. You can look up the five pictures, and the one, the fairy bower one, it's, it's really neat. It's very different than the others. The amount of time they would have had to spend just cutting out the number of fairies that are in that photograph mm -hmm. is just insane anyway. Oh. Yeah, so that's uh, it's cute. I'll put I'll put them up. I'll put yeah, them all up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I seem to remember they made a film about this too. Yes, I was going to recommend actually. Um, the film is called Fairy Tale: A True Story. Yeah, and that was like the kids' version. And there was also photographing fairies. And I want to say I'm not sure if this is true. I want to say Sigourney Weaver's in it. Um, I'm sold. <laughs> I, I, I want to say that, but it's like an adult version of that film, so it's yeah. it's like the R rating. Okay. Um, but the fairy tale true story. I remember seeing that when I was yeah. a kid. That's really cool. Yeah. What, what's amazing about that to me is is like the the thirst, the desire to make these beliefs real. You know, like that the, the public was they they didn't dismiss it offhand. Like they wanted to believe this, right? Because you know, they. They've heard these stories their whole lives, you know, and, and um, why, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you've, you've got the guy that wrote Sherlock Holmes, like, who is also mm -hmm. a knight, coming out and saying, hey, like, I legit. believe in these yeah. things. Yeah. And they have a, a, a London photographer who's saying, oh, these are definitely real. You know, and this was the late 18, early 1900s. And back then, I mean, photographs... Everything that was in that shot was in the shot. Yeah. You didn't have mm -hmm. like a... So you, you had... There's yeah. no Photoshop. You know? Right. You didn't have a computer that wasn't, to sit yeah. down. Especially like what the skills that they could have had for that possibly. Yeah. That's absolutely wild. It's it's crazy that they could just fool people like that. I mean, because this girl, she's very good at drawing. I, I left out a lot that happens in the book, but mm -hmm. she's basically... Um, she's so good at drawing that she has... Uh, basically a career in it and and she's editing photographs for other people yeah. um with you know touching up with paint and charcoal or whatever they used um but so so she's she's just very talented yeah but then to be able to have access to that camera and and take this photographs and fool the entire world yeah I've, there's mm -hmm. like a really expensive like yeah <laughs> way to go into it that's great. And you get that attention, you know, that's obviously what it was that probably sparked them to do it at first. Well, to this day, like we, we are in, in some ways asked to believe ridiculous things, you know, right. and, and, uh, and, and, and magical things. And to, to actually uh, have evidence of that is, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's compelling. It's like... Yeah, I, 
if I mean, I'm sure if somebody came out with a picture of a fairy today that seemed legit, like people would be jumping on it, yeah. you know, because more people want to believe than don't. And even when I was looking at these, the photographs themselves, there's like a rabbit hole of like Reddit and like all <laughs> these places where you can, I mean, you can go down and people are like, oh, this is real because, you know, mm-hmm. it, especially we, that. We found that photograph. out when we, oh, with the Jersey Devil, yeah. People oh, are yeah. I mean, there's a. There's a society, Jersey Devil mm. Society. Flat, hey guys. flat earthers. And, <laughs> well, um, yeah, you listen. You know, <laughs> people are hungry for anything that's going to confirm their their beliefs. Yeah. The earth is round. I just <laughs> had to throw that in there. Are the fairies? Are fairies real? I, I don't think that... Uh, to paraphrase Richard Dawkins, he, you basically... You don't have to believe in fairies in the garden it don't change how mustard tastes exactly it don't change how mustard tastes yeah <laughs> yeah you can you can think the garden's beautiful without there being fairies in it and that's i like that. that's kind of how i feel too i mean that, i think that's basically what you said but so yeah i when i was looking into everything fairies is such a massive subject you you I, I, it was like almost hard like when we said, let's talk about fairies. And I know that we had been talking about this subject for a couple weeks before and doing research. So um, again, fairies can go in a lot of different ways, but I, I was fortunate. There, there is a kind of a, some cool stuff regarding the, the, how fairies became literary figures and how the British Isle area, how the, how the fairy kind of got to its modern thing. Um, so fairies, they're, they're in multiple cultures. Uh, even, I didn't even realize it. So like Greeks have the nymphs. Um, that was pretty understandable, but there's even a, a Sanskrit um, called a Gandharva, which is a, a semi-divine celestial musician. Um, and there's a few other things too, like in uh, we talked about Cami, the the jinn or genie of the right, Arabic, yeah. yeah, and that's that's a still very modern thing, um, and it's really cool because in all these there's the mytheme of these being like mischief creatures, and and in some cases too they were uh, like straight up evil um, mm-hmm. in the past too, like. Uh, they, they would they were, if if your child died or was deformed or if you got like a sick a sickness, um I think it was like tuberculosis is what it would like especially it was because of a fairy, um typically uh and it's actually so the the transformation of the tales and this is just a cool word of of these tales uh, and any other tale kind of losing that what what Wikipedia here calls the sinister kind of tr- element is called bowdlerization. Um, I don't know. I, I just kind of looked at the definition. I didn't really look into the etymology of the world, but it's just it's this. These things were were very negative and scary, but then lost it and are like the exact opposite today. And I just think about you know like the old Little Red Riding Hood where the wolf murders everybody, mm-hmm. and how it's not that anymore. <laughs> so, but specifically, um, the medieval era is when we saw fairies get used more and more. And it was first described by a historian um, Gervais of Tilbury in the 13th century. So that's when the word was kind of first used. Um, the word comes from specifically Old French and like vulgar Latin, and it has like a general meaning of uh, like magic, uh, magic e. And it, there's a cool like it was. So the original word I think was like fey, um, and it's sort of changed. And it's an old. There's an old Latin word of fey, F-E-Y, and, old, and old, or excuse me, an old Germanic word of F-E-Y and an old Latin word. And the Germanic word F-E-Y meant fated to die. And there's a Latin word that's unrelated that, ha- that also has a meaning of like doomed. 
Um, so it's kind of interesting that, like, the, the word fairy, it, it was like an adjective in a lot of ways or, or an explanation. It wasn't like, you could, you could even call gnomes or goblins or whatever, you would call them fairies in a sense. It's like a descriptor. A, yeah, yeah, a little creepy magical being that's going to mess with you and your kids. Um, so it's, it, yeah, it, and it wasn't until kind of going into the medieval era and obviously once we got to Shakespeare when he's writing them in Midsummer Night's Dream, they're they take on a whole kind of different thing they're they're very tangible and human-like and uh that sort of thing um and it was specifically so going into it um i noticed there's like the victorian era was where we see i mean i guess like novels are getting really popular and important and uh again shakespeare wrote in midsummer right at like the turn of the century um, uh, for the seven, 1500s mm-hmm. into the 1600s and so there was a precedent of a couple hundred years at this point of fairies not being little murderers um, and Queen Victoria had a, a fondness of um, like fairies in paintings and stuff like that and there was this um, uh, big moment uh, or movement called the Celtic Revival so this is a term or, or the Celtic Twilight or Celtomania as Wikipedia puts it and it was a 18th and 19th century, or excuse me, a 19th and 20th century sort of revivalism of old Celtic or Celtic, Welsh, British, old old Britonic, pre-Roman or pre-like Anglo-Saxon sure. kind of uh, venturing, and and it was that the love of that culture and the revival of that, and so we saw a huge flourish of that into uh, what was then modern, into novels and again paintings. Like there's tons and tons of great ones like that. So, um, it was, yeah, just a nice little flow of where it came from. I know, um, we kind of got like rings of things like how the old stories that we know, like Beauty and the Beast, um, was a classic, uh, an ancient story, but when it was scribed, it was scribed to its audience and that's why it has that Mm -hmm. tone. I remember you were kind of talking about that. Yeah. Excuse me. I think what we're seeing here is kind of this, this evolution of fairy. I think one of the reasons we've, it's not we've kind of grappled with the subject because it is so large is these stories are really really old um and um and we've seen you know we've grown up with fairy tales and, and disney movies and and uh we have this certain idea about fairy but it's it's evolved so much it started off i think as these kind of elemental mythical creatures like from ancient times mm-hmm. um and we kind of used fairy as a kind of a catch-all term to kind of um group them together in a way yeah. that makes sense and and as you mentioned like when we start hearing about it in during the medieval period um that's kind of when you know writing became or writing things down became a little more more common so yeah. we, we start to see these these stories become codified in a way and they you know they take on the world of the person who's who's writing them down so you know medieval fairy stories are going to be very different than um, than fairy stories that may they may have been written in the French court in, in during the Enlightenment, for example, um, which is where a lot of like the kind of Disney uh, fairy fairy tale stories uh, take place. <clears throat> and to your point about uh, bodilization, you know, we also see this uh, we see this this evolution again where where these fairy stories are adapted to become stories for children. Like right. they, they used to be just kind of like stories for adults or, or for, for everyone but um, specifically this kind of genre of, of fairy tale that was uh, 
that was intended for children and, yeah. and, and maybe, you know, sanding down some of the rough edges, right. removing some of the... how the... much of it is, it, it sounds like that it's a term that, like, I think of, um, what is the term when you, uh, govern, what is the, when you, when you can't say something anymore because it's offensive, PC, isn't that, yeah. what does that stand for? Political oh, correctness. Political correctness. That's it. I couldn't think. I was like, <laughs> government correctness? Um, it makes me feel like it's it's almost like related to that, political correctiveness. Um, but it's 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 a different because it's it's serving like an entertainment purpose, you know? Like, the, the story of Red Riding Hood is fun to tell to kids, but the world that it shapes, they don't want to hear about them getting devoured anymore, you know? Yeah. So I wonder I wonder how much of it is... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, I was like, where is he there's, going? I know. There's a, <laughs> there's a weird connect. There's like these roads split of like PC idea and theory and bolderization. So I wonder where that like, those crossroads meet and how much of it is one and the other, you know? Okay, I see. You follow me? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Through the magic of the internet, I have something. Uh, so bolderization was named after the English physician Thomas Bodler. Uh, in 1818, Physician. he published a censored version of Shakespeare. Oh. Uh, so uh, that's where that term comes from. Interesting. So is I guess he, he took out he took out all the the, the naughty bits. This is actually uh, Wiktionary. Oh, okay. Oh, thanks, Wiktionary. Thanks, Wiktionary. Um, let's, uh, he's a physician. Go fix a knee or something. Stop <laughs> rewriting Shakespeare. Stop fixing Shakespeare. Well, they didn't Shakespeare. know how to do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, fine. that's true. Yeah, anyone could be a physician. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Probably like using leeches on people. Right? Yeah. Well, anyway, um, so that yeah, the, I I just I like to see the evolution of these things, and it's really apparent with that. Um, it's also so multicultural. Like, like I said, I barely scratched the surface. We could easily have uh, separate shows on mm-hmm. what you know what we may classify as fairies in the respective cultures. Um, yeah, I feel like we could do like a whole series just on. British Isles fairy tale mm-hmm. stories, but you know every culture has these. Yeah, you know, like we can come back to this again and again. And I'm yeah. sure we will. The umbrella tree. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, everyone, Cammy. Hey, you want to say something? No. I was Good. Just... All right. Thanks for listening. This <laughs> is bowled over. Bowdlerize. Bowdlerize over. <laughs> well, everyone, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Um, what did we do at the end? I can't remember now. <laughs>